0: One Hope Church. All right, so Second Corinthians chapter ten. Let's just begin by reading um, the first six verses. But just again, some of the setting. You know, Paul has had this long, ongoing relationship. With his church at Corinth, he actually started the church, um, planted the church. When he lived there for about two years, um, he was a little bit surprised at his ability to be there and to have success there um, among the people, um, because it was you know such a godless place and had such a reputation for that. Um, but the word of God went forward powerfully, and so at this point, um, he's he's written letters. This is actually, second is actually his fourth letter. And he's preparing for his third visit. Um, There have been some problems in the church at Corinth that we really saw those um, as we went through 1 Corinthians, uh, some problems in the church that needed to be addressed and uh, problems of different types. But in this, there are some who oppose oppose Paul and oppose his message of the gospel. And they're trying to get people in this church to basically defect and to... Um, leave that and, and to go to something different, or, or if they could, just to change the whole thing um, away from what was started um, in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make it into something different that suits their needs, that gives them power, um, that uh, is what they want it to be. And so there is a real opposition in the church towards Paul. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit, and we're going to go back to those first two verses. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul is is readily saying, Hey, I'm meek you know, when I'm when I'm with you, and, you know, that his letters have been bold. Now, some have misinterpreted this to mean that Paul is one way when he's there and he's another way when he's not. That he's actually not meek, but he's weak. Um, and there's a tremendous difference, you know, between those things. They're saying he's actually weak. He can only sound strong if he writes a letter, but he's not really strong. But there's a big difference between meekness and weakness. We see that, in the life of Christ as the ultimate example. Christ, you know, fully God, fully man, but, you know, in his power, in his divinity, he had the authority, you know, when he was on the cross, he could have spoken the word and come off of it. Um, you know, he could have destroyed everybody that was there, at, you know, in an instant, if that's what he had desired. He had ultimate strength. He was not weak, but his meekness is restrained strength. It's the proper use of strength. And it's with gentleness. gentleness, And that's, you know, since Christ is Paul's example, he's following that same pattern, knowing that it can be misinterpreted by some. And so he didn't present himself in a way to try to be imposing or to try to be domineering. But he says, you know, he says, I ask in verse 2 that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. He says, you know, he really doesn't want to have to use the power that he has. He would prefer not to. He would prefer not to. Now again, where does Paul get this power from? He gets this power from God. He has a certain authority. He He is an apostle, and the apostles had you know, a certain spiritual authority and certain power at their disposal. Now, they had to use that within the will of God and with the, you know, permission of God, basically. But they had um, something extra that the common follower of Jesus didn't have. They have an authority um, in their ministry. And certainly people can have that today, but to a lesser degree than what the first apostles had as they are... You know, beginning the the church, and are the first you know movers of it, um, and it was really important that it, it would be set on a firm foundation, and so God gave them some some extra, we could put it that way. God gave them some extra, but he says in verse three, though we do we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful the destruction of fortresses. So he's saying, you know, he's not coming in with fists raised. It's not a physical war, a physical battle. He doesn't need to have a sword you know, or some sort of weapon in order to, to fight this battle. Because this battle is really fought in the spiritual realm, much more so than the physical realm. But one of the things that he really wants to get at the church at Corinth here is their tendency just to see things in terms of the physical, just to go based on what their, you know, their eyes can see and their hands can touch, you know, and, and not to see beyond that to the spiritual things that are at play. So he says, their weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Well, what are these divine weapons that he has at his disposal? You know, if you go through Ephesians chapter 6, you see Paul talking about putting on the full armor, you know, of Christ. And there we see the power, you know, that is available for the, for the follower of Jesus and the weapons that are um, at his disposal and also at our disposal. You know, the power of prayer we see there. Uh, the power of the word of God, the truth of God, um, you know, the power of faith. Uh, these, are, these are some of our weapons that are to be, to be used. And so if we understand that, if we understand that, the, that we're in a spiritual warfare, then we say, okay, what weapons do we have and what should we be using? And that would, you know, should cause us to pray. You know, it, could call, it should cause us to have faith and to, to trust in God. It should cause us to dig into the Word so that we can use it properly um, in our lives and in the lives of other people. Because he says these weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of, Forces, And he says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty, lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Again, again, just think of these. this from Ephesians 6.12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, do we have that perspective? Do we have that perspective? He says that you know, they want to take every thought captive. That you know, a lot of this has to do with the battle of You know ideas. You know what is the truth, and you know how do you know the truth, and you know what is it, and do you follow it and live by it? Because again, remember in these, you know, there's different lies that are being told. You know, in the Church of Corinth, there's a there's a lot of 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 legalism. You know, people saying, "Hey, we need to go back to the law of you know Moses." Um, You know, it's all about circumcision. It's all about you know, and this was a common thing that happened in a good number of the churches. If you read, um, you know, the Book of Galatians, uh, for example. But you know, this bent toward legalism that would ultimately destroy the work of God. And then there's others who, you know, obviously as we see in First Corinthians, that you know, kind of an anything goes, you know, mentality, and you can make up your own rules. And we see that even today, as people want to really do that, people want to make up. What's, everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes. And you don't want to have a standard of accountability, a standard of authority that says this is right and this is wrong. We all want to be able to say, hey, I get to decide what's right and wrong for my life, and you can decide what's right and wrong for your life. And so Paul has to you know, tackle these issues and these things, but a lot of it. It again is about the truth. It's about the truth. And we have that phrase to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because what did Jesus say when he told, you know, his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples, you know, of all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He says, "And teach them to teach them everything I have commanded you." You see, so a lot of times people go, okay, well, well, we'll get the person to believe in Jesus, and then we'll get them, you know, baptized, and then we've won, you know, yay, moving on. Well, that's part of it and really, really important. Because unless a person, you know, actually is saved, if a person hasn't gone from death spiritual death, the spiritual life yet, to try to live according to God's ways is just going to be futile. There actually has to be that point of, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I believe in Jesus. Like, that is the gospel. That transformation has to take place from the inside. Not just changing external habits. Not just, you know, following a 12-step program or becoming a, you know, quote-unquote, better person. But there has to be a fundamental change of the heart that can only happen as a person is, you know, changed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That only happens through the power of God by grace through faith. Right? It's not like, oh, I'm just, you know, so many people have this idea of, you know, I want to be a better person. So now I'm going to try to live according to God's way. So I'm going to start you know, attending a, a, a church or some, something like that. I'm going to start reading, you know, the Bible. I'm going to start trying to, you know, watch the words that come out of my mouth. I'm going to start trying to be a nicer person. Well, those, we don't say, oh, those are all good things, right? But what can end up happening at the end of that is a person says, well, now I am all these things. But there hasn't been... The fundamental change yet. And now what we have is the spiritual pride, the sin of pride, because it hasn't been rooted and grounded in the necessary humility of, I can't save myself. Jesus, I need you to save me. It has to start with that. But let's talk just for another minute about the taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. With our our enemies, you know, one of the things our enemy is, is really, really good at, and he's actually the best at is lying. Because a good liar is an effective liar. You ever talk to somebody and they're just really bad at lying? They lie a lot, but there's not even a chance you're gonna believe it. You're just like, dude, you're so bad at lying. Like it's not even funny. You think you're getting away with something here, but, you know, it's terrible. And you see this with kids, you know, sometimes too. You know, it's like they say something and then they go to the old, like that. I mean, like they completely give it away. You know, doing that number. Um, but our enemy, he's not a bad liar. He's a great liar. He's a great liar. He's the very best liar there ever has been there ever has existed ever will exist. He's been lying since Genesis chapter 3 and he knows every trick in the book. He's been lying to humans ever since Genesis chapter 3. He knows every single tactic and he's had a long time to perfect it. So we have to be on our guard because if we start believing the lies of the enemy, that's when we get torn up. So we need to ask God to expose any of the lies that we're already believing or that we're starting to believe. And these lies come in all different shapes and forms. There are lies of, you know, no one cares about you, not even God. There's laws of you know theological laws. Now, since God is love, He's not really going to judge anybody harshly, is He? I mean, God's love, right? It might be that you're not good enough. It might be that you can be strong with just Jesus and you, and you don't really need other. You don't need fellowship and community. You don't really need the church. You you're okay on your own. You just need you and Jesus. Now, a lot of times with these laws, there's a bit of truth in it, a little bit of truth in the law. I kind of look at it like fishing, okay? You, when you fish, sometimes you, use, you, know, you can use you know, real bait, sometimes you use artificial bait, right? Now, with real bait, the fish actually gets a meal, actually gets a worm or a cricket, or whatever, but doesn't realize that in the process of getting that, that he's also going to become a meal. Okay? So there's the deception. Like there's some there's some truth there. This is a real, this is real food for you to eat. Oh, oh but it's got a hook. And now you're the food. Okay? But then there's so that's that's lies that have truth. Now there's some lies that that don't, don't have any truth, but it's still so deceptive. There's the, the artificial lure. There's the artificial lure that looks like a fish, little fish, but it's not a fish. It looks like a worm, but it's not a worm. It's plastic, or it's just it's metal. The enemy doesn't really care which one he gets you with. Whether it's all artificial, or if there's a little bit of truth in it. As long as you take... The bait that has the hook. There's deception. There's distortion. There's manipulation. And the enemy will will play on any one of your past failures, or he will play on someone else's failures. I think that's one of the reasons um, the family is so attacked, and per- particularly, you know, men as husbands, that well, that is all attacked so much, because the Scripture presents God, you know, one of the, one of the ways the Scripture presents God is, you know, heavenly Father as a good Father, an ultimate Father, really. Because all human fathers, you know, in the Bible even it takes this clearly, all of our human fathers make mistakes and, you know, aren't perfect and have errors. But so many times we see in so many people's, you know, lives that not having a good earthly father then distorts how one then can see God. So the enemy takes that, that truth You know, in many cases, that your father wasn't a good father. That's true for some. That's not true for all, but that's true for for many. But it takes that truth with many people's lives of your father wasn't a good father, and then distorts that and manipulates that to how can you trust God, who calls Himself your heavenly Father, to be good in your life? I mean, that's just one of many, 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 many. One of many, the enemy is exceedingly crafty. He'll also get you to take you know one another person's wrong and get you to justify your own sin. Do you take other person's wrong or other people's wrong and get you to justify a bad attitude within your own heart. He'll get you into the justification by comparison game, where it's no longer about being obedient to what Jesus is asking you to do in your life, but it's about how you look to, uh, compared to other people who also claim to be followers of Jesus. Well, compared to other followers of Jesus... I've got good control of my tongue. Well, compared to some other followers of Jesus I know, I don't really gossip very much. Well, compared to some other followers of Jesus know, I'm generous. As if when you're before Jesus, you're going to say, well, compared to so-and-so, you did a really good job. You know? As if. The enemy will also tell us that it's not worth the cost, that you know, you can give and give in people's lives, but you know, people are fickle and people will fail and people aren't worth it. Because the people you try to help the most will often disappoint you the most. The enemy will hit that and tell you, you see, it's not even worth it. It doesn't even make a difference. So stop trying. Why are you even still trying? When you have that point of frustration, you need to realize the enemy is lying to you and trying to get you to stop putting it on the line for Jesus. Whenever you stop putting it on the line for Jesus, I mean, it's just a downward spiral from there. It keeps going back to judging things based on the flesh and according to how things appear and how things seem to be from what we can just see physically. But again, there's the spiritual realm, there's a spiritual element with which we have to be vigilant, we have to be concerned, we have to be aware of. Halfway through verse seven, he says, If anyone is confident in himself that he is he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. In chapter 12, Paul go into more detail about why some in Corinth may have perceived him as strong only in letter and not in person. But what I want to focus on for our purposes here this morning is that when someone, when God gives someone spiritual authority or even just God gives you a spiritual gift, whatever your spiritual gifts are, when God gives you that, he gives it to you for the purpose of building up, not for the purpose of tearing down. If anyone has authority, if anybody has gifting, they're given it for the purpose of building up not for destroying. The ultimate goal is to build something of quality, to build something that will last in eternity, right? Now, as he's kind of alluding to here, you know, as he says earlier, there's things that we have to tear down. Sometimes in order to do a proper renovation, you have to remove some of the old and remove some of the destroyed or destructive and then rebuild, right? But I... I want to propose to you this morning, and something that we all instinctively know—that even with stuff that's good, to destroy good stuff isn't hard, right? We could come in here this morning. You know, we just had this experience of laying travertine tile, and it's pretty fragile stuff. Um, and you know, we could have a—you know—we could have a big pallet of that here. We have hundreds of pieces of it, and we could say, okay. This morning, we're going to destroy this stuff. We're just going to shatter it into a thousand pieces. And there's not a person in this room who couldn't participate in that. You take it and smash it on the ground, boom, it go, just shatter everywhere. That's easy. That's easy. But now we say we're going, to, we're going to lay it, and we're going to lay it level and clean and properly. Well, wait a second. That takes a lot more effort, a lot more work, and a lot more skill. The destruction is easy. Most everyone is capable of doing damage to a church. And if enough people, or people who are you know skilled enough at destruction, really like destruction, decide to, they can really do a lot of damage to a church or to split a church or to destroy a church. Splitting a church hurting a church, those things are not difficult. And all of us are capable of it. But to build one, to be part of building one that has a quality to it that will last into eternity is not an easy thing. It takes God's, God's part of gifting And His work of the Holy Spirit—it takes effort, but it it, also—it takes God's work on it. But it takes also our participation. It takes learning. It takes skill. It takes perseverance. And so, if you want to be part of building, there's a cost to it. It, It—it can hurt. It can hurt. But it's worth doing. And so that's a question we have for this this morning. You know, for each of us to examine our own hearts and say, am I building the church? Am I helping to build the church? Because there's really options. You know, you can be, you know, I'm building it, or... I'm disengaged. I'm kind of like just, I'm not fully in, I'm not fully out, I'm just kind of halfway. Or I'm causing destruction within it. Those are kind of your options on that. Verse 12 For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God appointed to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but for whom the Lord commends. Okay, so again, back you see in verse 12 that many will talk about how good they are either by comparing themselves you know, with their own standards or comparing themselves by those they want to compare themselves with. <laughs> Say, okay, I'm good here. Um, and and we've, kind of, we've already kind of tackled some of this, so I'm not going to belabor you know, the point. But Paul here with the Church of Corinth is saying, hey, you know, we, we weren't overextending what God gave us to do. <laughs> Because he gave us the, you know, to come to you and to share the gospel with you. And then um, he goes even further that he says that their desire is to go to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. So there he's kind of putting it to the church at Corinth a little bit about why it's so important for them to be healthy. He says, you know, it's really, it's important for them to be healthy, not just for their own sakes, but there are people beyond them that are counting on them to be healthy, you know, in Christ, so that, you know, Paul and others can move on beyond Corinth and go to other regions, other, you know, further regions, further places, you know, with the gospel. And that the church at Corinth, that they could really participate in that. You know, like he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he says, you know, you know, we don't need to say anything because in all the regions surrounding you, you know, the word of your testimony has, has gone there. So he can't really say that so much about the church at Corinth that he could about the church at Thessalonica. So then, again, there's the question to us of, you know, hey, certainly it's not all bad in the church at Corinth, but we'd much rather be like the church at Thessalonica. And that it's really, really important for us to get it right because others beyond us are counting on us to get it right. Others beyond us are counting to get it right. There are little villages in Mexico that still haven't gotten the gospel yet. They're just now being reached that... Part of our efforts there and our partnership with the followers of Jesus there is helping the gospel to continue to expand and to continue to move forward, to still get to people that haven't been gotten to yet. So yeah, it's important that we do well here in Athens because people in those mountains are counting on us too. (laughs) It's important that we do well here because there's girls on this island in Lake Victoria, in Tanzania, in Yukuwere, that are counting on us to get it right. They're counting on us to get it right. Like, Man, well, that sounds like a lot of pressure. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes pressure's good. Sometimes pressure's good. I don't know too many people who we get, you get your best with no pressure at all. When you see, I mean, you take anything, you take any sphere of life, and uh, there's a little bit of pressure that is often necessary to get the best out. I mean, athletics, certainly, we see this. When the stakes are the highest, oftentimes you see people go to a level that they didn't even know they had. Well, that's just sports, that's just stuff that ultimately, you know, it's really fun and it's enjoyable and it's part of our lives and there's a lot of good reasons to participate in it for our health and enjoyment. And God, I think God gave it to us, you know. But at the end of the day, it's small compared to like, the eternal weighty things, the eternal weight of glory. So the reality is that for most of us, We haven't seen yet how the Lord can fully use us and what we're capable of, not on our our own strength, but if we're fully in with Jesus. If we're all in and we're putting everything on the line and there's that good pressure, we haven't seen yet what that looks like in most of our lives. Can we say that this morning? Can we just go ahead and say that? Agree with that? that there's another level that's there. But the reality is, the sad reality is, that most of us will live far too distracted lives to ever find it. Let me take that back. I don't, I mean, I because I certainly don't want it to be that. And most might be strong, but 51% is most. So, you know, if... 49% 49% or 100% on fire? I mean... Mm. Let's make it not most. But those come down to real choices and real decisions that we all have to make. And then again, he talks about this Commendation. You know that you're just living in what other people have done, or you're just comparing yourself to others who, you know, you know that you're going to compare favorably towards, or compare compare favorably with. But then at the end, he says, "For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends." Now, if you think about that, what what sort of, you know, sometimes you you have to ask for recommendation letters, right? You know, you're applying to a school or to a job, and you have to have people who recommend you and often write things for you. Um, you know, my experience generally has been that I'm, you know, in our church, that I'm, I'm really, really happy to get those opportunities to write those letters. It's very rarely that I'm like, oh, uh, we might have to have a conversation here because I'm not sure you want me to do that. That's rare. That's very rare. Thankfully. But what you write about yourself or what some other person writes about you pales in comparison to whether or not Jesus commends you. It says, whom the Lord commends. So let's just ask that question. What sort of letter of recommend, recommendation or commendation would Jesus write for you. If Jesus is the one writing the letter for your life, because again, he knows it all. He sees every moment. He sees everything. Like, what letter does he write? What letter does he write for you as an individual? What letter does he write for our church as a whole? And would we want to read it? Would we be like, Okay I, I want to read that and be like no let's just let's just leave that sealed and put that somewhere, and you know maybe we can just get a rewrite in a few years. How about that? But this is what we really need to be caring about what the how the Lord views us, how the Lord sees us and i I want us to have balance here because certainly. Jesus is full of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and cleansing, like He does all that for us, right? Like that is that is so true. And we we can't do anything without the grace of God. Like we have nothing to stand on. Because again, we know we know our own failures. And we know that none of us would be like, you know, oh, this person is perfect. Or you know, I mean, please. We, we know that there's so much room for improvement. So we want to hold on to that grace and mercy and love, and we don't want to shortchange that God's forgiveness and his cleansing in our daily lives as followers of Jesus by any means. And so don't take what I'm saying as that. But there's another side to it where we're also told to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And so that there is a real standard there. A, there is a real expectation of what Jesus expects for his followers, what Jesus expects from his disciples. And that if we are going to be you know, help, a part of the process to help make disciples who obey everything that Jesus commanded, we also have to do what? We have to strive to live to that standard to obey what Jesus has commanded us. So, so I want us to hold those things Together. It's not an either either or. It's the grace, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness, and the responsibility, the accountability, the need that we have to walk in obedience with Jesus Christ. Don't separate those things, hold them together. Don't go to one end or to the other end, hold them together. We rely on God's grace, but we shouldn't abuse it. We should live in thankfulness for it. So, in conclusion, here, what have we learned from this chapter, from 2 Corinthians chapter 10? Again, the real battles are of a spiritual nature. The battles that we face are of a spiritual, ultimately of a spiritual nature. The enemy is a liar. He desires to deceive us, to destroy us. You need to examine what law are you prone to believe. Where are your weak spots when it comes to the laws of the enemy? Know them. Acknowledge them. Deal with them. With the truth of God. The truth of God's word. Let the truth of God replace the law. So that was the second thing. The third thing is we have a responsibility to get it right. Others in this world are counting on us to do so. We should view that as a, not as a burden, but as a blessing and a privilege that we get to participate in the mission of Jesus with Jesus. And finally, the letter of commendation that really matters is the one that comes from Jesus. That's it. You know, there's, there's enough right there. Thankfully, we have all of the rest of the scripture, but there's enough right there to work on for a pretty good while, I think, right? To focus on and to say, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with our church? Because it's important For us, but not just for us. To get it right. And Jesus is worthy of it. Really all comes back down to that. He went to the cross for us. He paid for our sins. He's worthy of us. To live in his grace. And to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. He's worthy of that. And so, as we take the bread this morning, as we take the cup and we remember the body of Jesus that went to the cross for us, his blood that was shed for us, we say thank you. We ask the enemy to expose our laws. I'm mean, sorry, not the enemy. We ask God to expose the lies of the enemy in our lives. It's a whole different thing. But hey, you're paying attention, you're listening, that's all good. Can't just say anything up here. That's great. Minds and hearts are on, (laughs) turned on. But, you know, we really have to expose those. Have God expose those. Because if we don't deal with those things, then the enemy can always hang that over our heads all throughout, every step of the way. So we have to deal with those things. But we want him to, and we want... Jesus to, to be pleased with us. We want him to be able to say, good and faithful servant. you know, Well done. That's the ultimate. Is to live life as a thank you that we can have our lives laid down back at the feet of Jesus. And thanks for what he's done for us. Again, there's so many things that can get in the way of that. This morning, we have the opportunity not to be distracted, to put all those things of life, even for a short time, so we can see clearly and think clearly this morning, and just put our hearts and our minds towards Jesus. Because that's really what church is supposed to be about. That's what our community is about. It's about Jesus. That's why we meet together is because of Jesus. And whenever that has been lost, the church completely loses its way. And so we have to come back and say, Jesus, this really is all about you and it's for you. And we love you because you first loved us. Now help us to live in a way that shows that love, day in and day out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, again, we thank you. And we pray that our hearts and our minds would be renewed by your word this morning. That our our hearts and our minds would be continuously transformed to be more like Jesus. For those of us who have come to you and admitted that we're sinful and that we have nothing apart for you, we thank you for saving us, Jesus. And for those of us who aren't quite there yet, we say, Lord, please show each one, those here and those not here, Lord, that need you, please show your love this morning, we pray. Show the need for you, dear Jesus, we pray. Lord, we pray also, and we just ask that your gospel would go forward throughout the world this morning, or whatever time it is in every place, that people would be coming to know you as you really are, that your people would be confessing sin and turning to you and being renewed, we pray, Lord. So help us.